How's that? A little better? It's such a privilege to hear from you, Will. And I'm just so grateful for your story. And I'm mostly I'm grateful for how God worked and has brought you to this point. Um, so if you could turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, we've been going through the Old Testament. And last week, Joel talked about knowing God's deliverance. And so in the Exodus, what has happened is that God has delivered the Israelites from Egypt. And now they're entering into the wilderness. And we're going to talk about kind of what they do out there. Um, but 1 Corinthians 10, the New Testament actually explains how we ought to view this. Um, before I do that, I just want to let Eli know, my brother, I've been storing up wrath for you because he called me Esau a couple weeks ago. And so I'm, I'm, I'm going to get you back eventually. It's just not today. Uh, I'm trying to imitate God's patience. Um, so just waiting for the proper time. But, you know, Joel talked about the progression of sin how the Israelites hardened their hearts in the wilderness. So we're really going to look at what that meant and what that was. Um, and, and what I want you guys to take away from this is that everything in the past was written for us in the Old Testament, in all the scriptures, so that we could love God without grumbling or complaining, but with steadfast love and faithfulness. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let me turn there. In uh, verse 1, it says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So here's Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And Corinth is kind of like modern-day America. It's an incredibly wealthy city, at least in its context. Compared to us, they're, they're dirt poor. But in their context, incredibly wealthy, lots of social movement, people trying to get rich, trying to do these types of things, and lots of pagan worship. You know, we like to think that that doesn't go on in our country, but it does. Yeah. It's everywhere. And it's, it's because of the idolatry in people's hearts. And so the church was struggling with some issues. Uh, they had a lot of issues. They had people, um, you know, having relations with their stepmother. Um, and they weren't doing anything about it. They just let it go on. Uh, they had lots of division, bitterness towards each other, hatred, envy. Uh, they had idolatry. People were going to pagan temples and participating in the sacrifices. And so there was a lot, a lot, a lot of problems. And so Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware. And then he reminds them of the story of the Israelites. Right? And he reminds them of all the blessings that the Israelites had. And there's a reason he does this, because those blessings are parallel to the blessings that we have 
in Christ. Okay, so check this out. I got a little, uh, a little table. I kind of want to get out of the way. I don't know. So I can see it. So here's the blessings that the Israelites received according to the book of Exodus. Okay, first of all, in Exodus 15, they went through the Red Sea. We all know that story, right? God parted the sea, and they passed through it. And I think Joel talked about that, the pass-through experience. And the way Paul describes it, he says they were baptized into Moses. Uh, I'm, to be honest, I don't entirely know what he means by that. But the point is that this is analogous to your baptism into Christ. Right. It's very similar, is his point. And they were saved from evil and sin through that experience. Or you should hope, right? Spiritual food and drink. So the Israelites were hungry. God sent them manna from heaven. Bread. They, actually, the, it's funny, the word for manna was like, what is this? They didn't really know what it was. Um, actually, I think it was more literally whatness. So it's like, uh, it's something. <laughs> and we can eat it. And they describe it like honey and like bread and like it's all these different things. It's a really delicious bread. Um, and then they were thirsty and they were in a desert. So there's not much water. So God provided water for them through a rock that Moses struck with his staff. And we're going to read these stories a little bit. Um, and then Paul says that Christ is the rock, right? So that's kind of a mysterious thing of what he means. But I thought of this, okay? When, when Moses went to strike the rock, he struck it and water came out. And when Jesus was on the cross and when he had died, they struck his side and water came out. And so Paul, I think Paul was, was imagining this is what it's like to receive blessings from Christ, water from a barren place. And then uh, God's presence. They had God's presence. So the Israelites had the tabernacle, which in Exodus 35 through 40, God explains how they're going to build this place where his presence will be, and they can go and meet with him. They had the cloud that guided them on their way. It was God's presence and also his leadership. Um, and so they had his presence in abundance. They could literally see it. They're, in that sense, they're actually a little bit more blessed than we are. I've never seen the cloud of the glory of the Lord or a pillar of fire. And so they had that. And they also had the law of the Lord, which God gives them in Exodus 20 through 24, which he reiterates in Deuteronomy, which he explains even more in Leviticus. So it's a beautiful thing. And so they had all these blessings. And then we have, you know, our baptism into Christ, which Galatians 3.27 says, everyone who's been baptized has been baptized into Christ. I'm paraphrasing. God's daily provision, which 1 Corinthians 10 is talking about. They have a spiritual food and drink. And Paul goes on to talk about communion. I think those are analogous, right? Um, Christ is our rock, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that, that God has placed his church on the rock, which is Christ. And so the Israelites had the rock. We have the rock. Um, they had God's presence. We have the presence of the Spirit, which has been poured out into our hearts. Uh, and we have the law of Christ, Galatians 6, 2. So we have all the same blessings. And Paul says... I don't want you to be unaware that just having God's blessings does not make you secure. Okay, and so let's go to Exodus now. So I want to actually read what happens. Um, actually, I want to do a little digression here, okay? I want to talk about the law. Uh, because sometimes we talk about the law of the Old Testament and we're like, ooh, that's boring, right? <laughs> like I remember as a kid, I was learning to read and I was like, well, my dad reads the Bible. I guess I'll read the Bible. And I wasn't a very good reader, so that was part of the issue. But I was struggling through the Bible, and once I got to Leviticus, I was like, yeah, I'm not interested anymore. And I stopped reading it, right? And that's sometimes how we treat, like, Leviticus or even Deuteronomy or even the parts of Exodus about the law. Um, I, started, I just looked up the term, the law of the Lord or the law on Google, and I just started reading what people write about it. One of the most common words is a curse. 
And that's interesting to me because, and actually a phrase I pulled off of a website called Got, I think it's called gotquestions.com. <laughs> said the law of God is a curse upon all mankind. Um, this is a, like Christians saying this. And the reason is they've been given a certain paradigm of how you view the Old Testament and what it's for. And it leads you to think that the law is a bad thing. But the law is not bad. The law is very good, and we should love the law of the Lord. In Psalm 119, it says, I have seen an end, verse 97, I have seen an end to all perfection, but your law is without limit. The longest psalm in the entire Bible is just him thanking God for the law and meditating on the law. So we should appreciate the law. We should love the law. You know, the, the law is, in some ways, very simple. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Right? So Jesus thought the law was good. He didn't want to get rid of it. Um, and the law is very simple. Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 36 and 40, through 40, uh, you know, there's two great commandments, and all the law and the prophets hang upon these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And those teachings are powerful, and they're revolutionary. Nobody else was teaching you should love your neighbor as yourself. So you, go read some Assyrian or Babylonian or Chinese. I don't care whose law code. It's not going to say that. It's going to say, hey, if your house collapses, kill them because that's their fault. Like, that's how people treated it. And the Bible says love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's a beautiful commandment from God. And Jesus describes it, right? All the law and the prophets hang upon these two commandments. I picture a tree, right, with branches and leaves coming off of it. And the Bible describes these leaves are for the healing of the nations, the tree of life. And so the law is a good thing. And it doesn't mean we have to keep the entire law because Jesus does talk about the weightier matters of the law. And those two commandments I just shared are the most important ones. And, and you know, sometimes we talk about legalism too, right? Hey, I don't want to be legalistic. And it's like, well, legalism isn't really about whether or not there's a commandment. There are commandments. And you're required to keep them. It's the law of Christ. But it is legalistic if your heart is the, well, excuse me, <laughs> almost died right there. <laughs> God, don't strike me down. <laughs> it is legalistic if your heart is not in the right place, right? If you are saying, like the Pharisees, you clean the outside of the dish, but the inside is full of greed and hatred and all these evil things, then the law is now a curse to you because you have not cleaned the inside. And ultimately, we do not clean the inside. The Spirit does through the power of God. But the point is, you guys, we shouldn't view this as a bad thing. It is a blessing. Jesus said, you search the scriptures for eternal life, but it's in me. But the scriptures point to me. John chapter 5, verse 39. So let's be careful how we use the term legalistic. You know, I often use it to defend my own sin. It's not really about how someone else approached me. It's about, well, I don't want to do that. So please, I'm just going to throw out this label. Um, so let's be careful about that. And let's, let's love the law. Okay, so anyways, let's, okay, digression over. Okay, so let's go to Exodus. So the Israelites have all these blessings in Christ and in God. They've been saved from slavery. I mean, the number of things God has done for them, it's incredible. You know, you could see it like when Will talked about all the things God has done for him, the gratitude that he felt. Okay, that is the appropriate response. But let's see how the Israelites respond. So in Exodus 16, verse 1 through 3, so they've passed through the sea. They're going into the wilderness. 
It is kind of ironic. It's called the wilderness of sin. Um, but it says, They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, this is hilarious, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So here God has rescued them from 400 years of slavery. And the moment they feel a little bit hungry, they say, I wish I was dead. Like, honestly, very dramatic. They need help. This is pathetic. And here they are. God, you should kill us. Strike me down because I'm so hungry. And in Egypt, at least my slave masters fed me. I'm like, how ridiculous is that attitude, right? And so that's, that's how they respond here. And look, watch how God responds in verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Now God does hear it when you complain. Sometimes we kind of act like, well, it doesn't matter. I'm just complaining to myself. No, God still hears. No matter if no one else is around to hear how whiny you are, right? And that's definitely something I struggle with. It was funny, Joel, Joel kind of gave a little shout out to my sermon in his lesson before church for his, his class. Um, and he was talking about how Grayson's going to talk about grumbling and complaining. And I was like, oh, man, <laughs> I better not get too preachy up there because just yesterday I was being a big whiner <laughs> and a big baby, especially towards my wife. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I have attitude issues. And, and God rebukes me for that through my own learning about this. But here we are, right? God has heard their grumbling in verse 10. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So the people are being big whiners, and God is incredibly gracious. Okay, you want meat, you want bread, I'll give it to you. You don't even have to do anything. It's just going to be there, and you can eat it and enjoy it. Okay, so, so that doesn't satisfy them. Turn to Exodus 17, in verse 1. Uh, it says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. Okay, so God has already given them miraculous food. And now they're like, Well, I want miraculous water. Wouldn't it be better if we were just dead? Why did, you, why did you bring us here to die in this desert? I would rather be dead. So again, they're being incredibly dramatic. They've had water the whole time. They've been out in the wilderness for months. And God has already shown them what he can do with water. He parted it completely. Like, he can provide water. But they're just being selfish, self-centered. 
thinking only about their wants and needs, right? And so, in verse 4, So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So here they take it a step further. Right Now they're like, okay, what we really want to know is, God, are you here? Even though he's been with them this whole time. They already saw the glory of the Lord in chapter 16 appear in the cloud the moment they started whining. They've had so many repeated assurances that God is with them that this isn't even at the point of, you know, what we would call faith. It's at the point of just, you've seen it. Like, what are you talking about? And yet this is how they act, right? So the Israelites are grumbling and complaining. They're rebelling against Moses, who God sent to them so that he could rescue them. And they're testing God. And this is exactly what Paul says we ought not to do. And so God eventually, he becomes filled with wrath. Because they take it even further, okay? Exodus chapter 32. So it takes a while. They keep kind of acting like this. Matter of fact, the book of Numbers records 14 different rebellions against God in the wilderness. 14 times they say, we don't, we don't trust you, God. We want to provide for ourselves. And if you don't provide for us, we're going to whine and complain about it without ending. In Exodus chapter 32 verse 1 through 7, they, they take their complaining to its highest level. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, so Moses has gone up to the mountain to receive from God the law, and he's going to bring it back, and they're going to be abundantly blessed. And you can literally see God's glory up on the mountain. Like, could you imagine standing by a mountain? I love mountains. They're so cool. They're huge, right? It makes me feel small, and not many things do that. So it's good. And you're standing there, and at the top of it, there's this, like, storm, just swirling with energy. It's like a vortex. I mean, you just, they were so afraid, they didn't even want to approach the mountain. So they knew who was up there, the God of glory. So they can see that, but they're sitting around waiting for Moses to come back. I believe he was up there for 40 days. And so the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. What has God been doing this whole time? but going before you. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So Paul actually quotes that last sentence. The people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. And so here's the people, they're, they're, they're grumbling, they're complaining, 
And then they're like, well, forget this. Let's just make our own gods. And we'll call him the God that we already had. They actually call him Yahweh. They act like this is God, even though it's just a golden image. And they said, tomorrow we'll have a feast to the Lord. But that's not the Lord. And you can see the Lord up on the mountain. What are you talking about? Right? But they, they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. If there's ever been a better description of our society, I haven't heard it. <laughs> like, what do I do when I sit down? It's like, all right, time to eat. And then, I, and then I'm like, all right, what am I going to drink? I don't want just water. That's not good enough. I need juice. I need, I need something good, man. I get complaining. I get whiny, right, if I don't get some juice. I'm like, it's just water. It's like, are you kidding? It keeps you alive. And it tastes great, actually. Right? But so that's kind of how our society is. And, you know, Eli was very vulnerable a couple weeks ago, and I, I deeply respected that. And it inspired me to be vulnerable. One of the most, to me, one of the most embarrassing things I've ever done in my entire life. So I was, I was in college, this was a few years back, I was at the University of Minnesota, and I came home to my parents' house, which I did, you know, maybe every other month for a weekend, and I came home, and nobody was around, and I thought people were going to be around, so I was going to hang out with them and have fun. And before I went to go to my parents' house, I had already set my mind that the whole weekend was about me, and how I was going to have fun with my brothers, and, you know, enjoy the food that my mom cooks, and all this stuff, and nobody was home, it was for the whole weekend, it was so bizarre. But I got home. And at first, I was kind of like relaxed, and I was like, all right, you know, nobody's here. They'll, they'll come home soon. And then after a couple hours, nobody shows up, and I start to have these urges. Like, I just need to be entertained. And I don't want to play Xbox, because I always do that, so that's not fun. So I was just thinking, like, what am I going to do to get pleasure for myself? And I started going through the house, and I started up, throwing up cushions, trying to find anything that would bring me pleasure. And I couldn't find it. Like, I was like, this house is so boring. But my heart rate literally, like, it was like through the roof. It was like I was playing a game of basketball, just sprinting around the house trying to find something. And my breath was, like, ragged. I was like, where is it? Help me. Like, it was so bad. And I didn't find anything. And I didn't, you know, necessarily sin in the sense that I did something sinful to please myself. And yet, after I was done, I sat down. I couldn't find anything. I said, God, forgive me that I can't even be content with what I have that I would be so desperate for pleasure and entertainment that I can't even, like, control my own breathing. Right? I was out of control. And, you know, I spent the whole weekend bored. So, <laughs> but I was grateful for that because it taught me something. You don't need entertainment as badly as you think. You can actually be content with God. And so, you know, this was, this was my heart, and this was what it made me think of. Um, so let's read verse... 21 through 24. So God, hear, God sees this because he sees everything, and he is not pleased. And he says to Moses, I'm going to destroy them. Okay, they've tested me far enough. I'm done with it. God's patience is, in fact, not infinite. Because if it were, it would no longer be patience. It would be forgiveness. Okay, and God is forgiving, and he is infinitely forgiving if you repent. Okay, so my point is not to question God's patience or his forgiveness, but to point out that we can't just constantly test God and expect no consequence. But Moses intercedes, and he says, he says Lord, I, didn't you say that you were going to make a great nation of them? And God basically relents and says, I'm not going to destroy them. Right? And so Moses then goes down with the two tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. He goes down to the people. And what verse did I say? 21. 
And so the people are singing and dancing and having a wonderful festival to the Lord, right? And Moses comes down and he hears this and he's like, oh, I wonder what they're up to. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? That's interesting. He's putting responsibility on Aaron as a leader. Hey, you you shouldn't have allowed this. You brought this on them. Now, it doesn't mean they're exonerated from all responsibility. But Aaron, you don't get a free pass just because there's a lot of them and there's only one of you. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. So Aaron tries, like, no, it's their fault. It's not mine. And Moses already said, no, you did this, right? For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Right, yeah. <laughs> okay, so you took a bunch of gold, threw it in a fire, and just a giant golden calf just appeared. But that is not what happens. You made a mold, you got some craftsmen together, and you guys put a lot of effort into this. But how often are we, and what lengths are we willing to go to excuse our idolatry, where we even make up complete nonsense? That's what Aaron did. First, he blamed the people. It's not my fault, it's their fault. And then he just started making up nonsense. So that's obviously not, that's not going to, that's not going to fly. Um, and when Moses saw, verse 25, that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose. If Aaron had just said, nope, guys, we're not doing this, we're going to wait, they probably would have listened. But he wouldn't do it. To the derision of their enemies. So even their enemies were like, how stupid are these people switching their God for other gods? Who does that? Their enemies thought it was foolishness. And so Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So this incredibly intense wrath breaks out against them. Because even when Moses comes to them, they're just like, no, it's not, it's not my fault. It's someone else's fault. Like, and they refuse to repent. And so 3,000 of them die. That's pretty harsh. Now, this isn't the only time that this happened. I said it. Fourteen times they rebelled against God. Every single time people died, and they kept doing it. Completely ridiculous. Like, what, what is going through your head that you said, well, they died, but we'll be fine. We'll just keep doing this. Fourteen times. And I, I didn't do a count, but I would guess at least 100,000 people died. Because one time it was 40,000, another 20, another 24. Okay, it's intense, and they just keep doing it. Now, this can seem harsh or unfair on account of God. Right? We can feel like, well, all they did was like make a calf to represent God. Well, first of all, the first commandment is, or actually, I don't remember which order it is. Maybe the second. Don't do that. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You just don't do that. God already told them. They knew that, and they just rebelled. But secondly, idolatry is not a sin that we should take lightly. Okay, turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. 
Sometimes we take idolatry really lightly. And we think, oh, what's the big deal? It's just an idol. I still love God. He's one of my gods. And yet God says this in Jeremiah chapter 2. And actually, I would recommend, if you want to think about this more, go back and read the whole chapter. But we're not going to read the whole chapter. We're just going to focus on... um, I don't know why I didn't write this down. Well, I did. I just don't see it in my notes. Uh, Verse... uh, We'll read right in the start of it. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. And then he says in verse 5, Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? When you pursue idolatry, you become worthless, just like an idol is worthless. And later on in the chapter, he says in verse 12, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. Idolatry is not just a sin that that we can minimize. It's a sin against heaven and earth. The heavens themselves are appalled at idolatry. Why do we coddle it in our own lives? And this is something that I've been guilty of. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we find wrong in God? Why is he not good enough? You know, what led the Israelites to idolatry? It started with complaining and grumbling. They started to say, well, God, you're not good enough. We need more stuff. God, you're not good enough. We need our own gods that we can at least see, and they're not kind of scary up on a mountain. It started with grumbling and complaining. You know, Eli told me he was listening to the radio the other day, and addiction generally starts with disconnection. You're not connected. And I don't know if that means just with other people. I imagine that's a part of it. A connection with God. And so people start to become addicted. You know, when I went to my parents' house, I was addicted to pleasure. And so pleasure became my idol. Whatever we find satisfying, that's what we praise. That's what we seek. That's what we love. And so if God is not satisfying for you, ask yourself, why is God not good enough for me? What has he done to wrong me? You know, Polycarp, one of the early church martyrs, they asked him, they said, Polycarp, if you just repent and say, Caesar is Lord, we won't kill you. And Polycarp said, God has done me no wrong. I think he said, these 86 years I have served him. How could I turn against him now? God has done me no wrong. And they killed him, and he was happy in it. And that's the heart that we want to have. So the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. But praise be to God, because he is all-satisfying, and we don't need to act that way. Okay, so let's go back to 2 Corinthians. So what is is the practical here that Paul wants us to get away from this story? Besides all the blessings that we've received and remembering them. In chapter 10, in verse 14, or I'm sorry, we probably didn't, yeah, we'll probably read in uh, verse 12. 
So, so he says, these things were written down for our instruction, that's verse 11, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, so here's what you need to take away from this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You know, God has done great things for the Israelites, but they shouldn't be overconfident that they will not be judged if they just turn to evil repeatedly and rebel against Him. And He's saying the same is true for us. But no temptation, verse 13, has overtaken you that is not common to man. You're just like the Israelites and everyone else. We struggle with idolatry. We struggle with contentment in God. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. God has given us everything we need in Christ to overcome temptation. Now, it doesn't mean we're all perfect, but we don't have an excuse when we sin, because we have everything we need. And God says I will not allow it. He knows that there's things that are beyond our ability. He says, if those things come, I won't even allow that to happen. That's how much God is protecting us every day. And we don't even remember that blessing. Right? We can feel like, this is too much for me. And the point is, it's not. Nothing is too much for you because God has only allowed what you are capable of overcoming to enter your life. And so you may be able to endure it. You know, sometimes we look for that miraculous escape, and I think that happens. There's been many times where I've been about to sin and something happens and all of a sudden I just don't even want to do that anymore. But then there's some times where you just have to endure. You just have to stand up like a man and be firm and be faithful like God is faithful. Okay, and then he says, okay, God has, been, has given you everything you need. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. There's only, as far as I know, there's only one other passage where he uses that language of flee from this type of sin and it's sexual immorality. And sexual immorality was one of the most common ways that the Israelites were drawn into adultery. And you can see that in the book of Numbers, which we'll study later, and many other places. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Just think about that for a second. When you take communion, and when we're together like this, we participate in Christ. What a blessing that is. How beautiful. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So here he's reminding them, when you go and participate in these pagan rituals, you are in fact offering a sacrifice, not to a god, as if they're anything. They're not gods, but they are demons. And do you really want to be involved with demons? I know I don't. Honestly, has anyone ever seen Paranormal Activity? Scariest movie I ever saw. Why? Because I feel like it's real. <laughs> I remember I came home from that movie, and I jumped at everything that happened. 
I went in the bathroom and there was a bag on the door and it started swinging and I was like, ah! I was terrified. They're demons. Fear them. Run from them. Don't have anything to do with that. Because it's scary. And because it's not good for you. But also, in verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Now, God is a jealous God because He's loving. I am jealous about my wife. That's not bad. That's good. I should be. God is jealous about His bride, which is the church. And so we should take comfort in that. God is jealous over us. But we should also take a little bit of fear. I'm not going to go towards, you know, cheating. Because God will be upset. And I don't want to hurt him. And I certainly don't want to face his anger, right? And so I want to close out just by reiterating everything I've said, you know. We are sitting in almost the exact same shoes as the Israelites. God has blessed us abundantly. He's given us everything we need in Christ to be faithful. The Israelites grumbled and complained, and it led them to idolatry, and it ultimately led to their deaths. And this is because God is a loving and jealous God. He's a patient God, but His patience does not extend towards constant evil. At some point, there has to be justice. And all of this was written, according to Paul, for us. This didn't happen randomly. God said, I want you to know, write this down so that people will know what this is like. Do not fall in these shoes. It's so easy to become complacent or arrogant, to think that your walk with God is just perfect, and you can just, you know, when people ask you how you're doing, you say, I'm doing well. Robert taught me not to say I'm doing good. It's not grammatically correct. But, you know, you, you just say that by reflex. And you honestly, you often believe it. But when you think about it, okay, be careful. It's not that we should be nervous or insecure, but we should be fearful of God. And we should also be devoted to Him. Flee idolatry. Don't flirt with it. If there's something that causes you to be idolatrous in your life, cut it out. Jesus said if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And flee sexual morality. Do not be united to demons. Instead, be united with God who loves you, who poured out Himself for you, who gave His life for you through His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And don't be a grumbler or complainer, but remember the blessings that God has given. I love you guys. At this time, we'll have some announcements. And uh, Josh can do contribution announcements for us. Thanks.